Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 14. You know, daily, if you spend much time keeping up with the news, daily our news reports are filled with images, tragic images of sufferings of people from conflicts and wars that are around the world. We see pictures of bombed out cities and of wounded children and and especially in these days, millions of refugees displaced, desperately trying to escape with their lives and find some place where there is safety and freedom. War is a very sad reality in a broken and fallen world. Over the past few decades, an awful lot of this violence has been occurring, as you know, in the Middle East. Many of our nation's troops have served in various parts of, of this war-torn Middle East, including quite a few from, from this congregation. From the conflicts that are there in the Middle East, there have been many stories of valor. Some of those stories have involved special forces uh, like SEAL Team 6 and other specialized small units that strike quickly undertake daring missions and daring rescues and amazing rescues. So this morning, as we're going to talk about conflict in the Middle East and special forces and dramatic daring rescues, but it all happened 4,000 years ago here in Genesis chapter 14. It just shows that as much as things have changed since then, things have remained the same. We find here in the first 11 verses of this chapter that there is war. It's actually the first war recorded in the Scripture. It's not the first war, I'm sure, that occurred, but it's just the first time in Scripture that war is mentioned. I won't read the first 11 verses because there's an awful lot of names and places and peoples that you really wouldn't really care about. Uh, so I'm going to just try to give a summary. I usually try to read the whole passage that we're covering, but for the sake of time, let me just kind of give a summary. There was an alliance of four kings in the east led by a man named Kedorlaomer, the king of Elam. We don't really know exactly where these all of these kings, four kings were located, but generally they were in this area uh, southern Iraq, Iran, Turkey, in that area. These four kings, as I said, they were allied with one another. They dominated during this, as this chapter opens, they were dominating the Middle East, collecting tribute from other kings. And as is noted here in the chapter, especially the five kings of the Jordan Valley. The five kings of the Jordan Valley had been paying tribute to these four eastern kings for uh, Twelve years they had been paying. As you know, when the, when the bully moves in the neighborhood, he starts taking the milk money from the kids. And that's what the nations did on the big scale. And, and these big bullies were taking the milk money from all the, the lesser kings and cities and nations around. And after 12 years, these five kings in the Jordan Valley uh, decided that they were done with this. They had had enough and they rebelled and they, they didn't send in their money that year. They said, we're not doing it anymore. 
That year went by without any problem, but the 14th year, the next year, the kings of the east moved to crush this rebellion. On their way to to deal with the Jordan kings, the eastern kings defeated at least six cities. They, As they came into the land of Canaan, they came down the east side on the, the ridges there, the mountains, and then they came down to the south and then back up to the north. Uh, toward the Jordan Valley. At least the, the Scriptures here record six kings, six cities that, that they destroyed along the way, whether they had joined in the rebellion or whether they uh, just were part of the collateral damage from these mad kings as they were coming through. I don't know. But the five kings of the Jordan mounted a fence, but it's a rather feeble attempt to to defend themselves. They amass their armies. They gather in this plain and they set up for for war. But even though the, the visiting team only has four kings and the home team has five kings, the home team folds quickly. They fall apart on the field. It mentions in the text that the battlefield here was was filled with tar pits all over the place. And Perhaps they had hoped they would be a natural defense against some of these invading forces, but as it turned out, as the invading forces routed the the home team and they started running for the hills, many of them fell into these pits and died. As I say, they all ran off to the mountains. They left the cities unprotected. And so these four eastern kings plunder the towns take all the stuff and all the people captive and begin to head back home. That is the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 11. The second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 12, contains really two, really the meat of the story. The first 11 verses really just set the stage. They help us to understand what's going on so this part of the story makes sense. We begin in verses 12 through 16, the first of really two events that are significant to us. In each one of these events, we want to draw a lesson for us this morning. Let me just read verses 12 through 16. So they, these four kings, also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. So, this section is all about a bold mission, a mission of rescue. You recall last time we saw that Lot had moved his family to live among the the plush, lush Jordan plain, the Jordan Valley, and live among the cities that were there because of all the opportunities it afforded. 
Ironically now, because he was there, he gets caught up in this warfare and he and his family get taken captive. And now they are headed back towards Mesopotamia where originally Lot was from that area. Abraham is living by the trees, the great trees, the oak tree that a man named Mamre owns. When word reaches him about Lot's capture, Abram immediately scrambles a tactical force, 318 trained men who are born in his household. That right there probably gets some of your attention if you've been following along and you've been hearing the story. And, And we tend to get the view when we think of Abram and his household that moved from Ur to Haran and then Haran to Canaan. And we tend to think, you know, it's, it's Abram, his wife Sarai, nephew Lot, and, and, you know, a couple of folks go along. Dad was along when they left Ur. And then they get to Haran and they're there for a while. It says they pick up more people. And we talk about that the first week. And then they, they come down to Canaan. And then they go down to Egypt and they come back with a few more folks. But we still probably think in our minds that we're dealing with you know, you've got Abe and Sarai and Lot and some other folks and, and you know, a couple of dozen scruffy herdsmen. <laughs> and, and we're just dealing with, you know, 30, 40 people. But right here we find out, whoa, if that's been your picture, it's all wrong. Abraham rallies very quickly, assembles, musters 318 trained fighters, an elite fighting force, all of whom were born in his household. If that's just the elite trained fighting men born in your household, you've got a household of thousands, probably two, three thousand people. We don't know. It never tells us. So this isn't just, you know, Abram isn't just some average guy living in a tent out there. He's the head of a clan of a large, we would say, a tent city. (laughs) He grabs these guys. We find out as they set out in pursuit of of these four kings, we find out at the end of the story that along with them also came Mamre, the guy whose trees that they're camped out by. He owns the property. He's the neighbor. And he has two brothers. And so these guys, along with probably fighting men that they have, because they have their own fighting forces, so you've got a force not of 318, but of more. But they head out pursuing these kings. They catch up with them at Dan, which on the map is is up toward the north. It's about 140 miles from where they started Hebron up to Dan. A lot of marching with your soldiers, but they move quickly. They get there. They find the enemy is camped out there. They are at ease. They're partying. They're they're not expecting anybody to come after them. After all, they have wiped out every military force they know of along the way. Abram and these and his Tactical force. They strategize. They have snuck in. The enemy is not aware they are there. At night they attack from 
Several different, it says they divided the forces. They come in from several directions. The enemy panics. They are routed. They run. They are thoroughly defeated. And just to make sure they're defeated, the story goes on, or the text goes on, that they chased them to north of Damascus to Habah, which is another hundred miles that they follow after them, just saying, and don't come back. <laughs> and I wonder as I look at this, and I wonder... Why would Abram undertake this mission to begin with? This was a very risky, a very daring, and a very dangerous venture. Because they were not going after just some band of nomadic thieves who just happened to be in the area. But rather, they were, they were going after the apparently who is the Middle East most powerful army who thus far has crushed all opposition and any opposition that they faced. I'm sure they outnumber Abram and his force many, many, many times over. And yet Abram wastes no time in getting these folks together and pursuing. And I wonder why would he risk everything to chase after this enemy and engage them? Abram has been living very comfortably here in Hebron. It has probably been, we don't know exactly how long, but probably several years since he and Lot parted company. And Abram had taken a little tour around the Holy Land, settled down, as God had told him to do, settled down by the the oaks, the trees here that Mamre owned. He's been there for some time. He is, as we will recall, he is rich, he is loaded, Hebron is a nice place, even today, from what I understand, it's still a nice place to be. And he's got buddies. Mamre and his brothers, they have become allies. Why would he risk it all to go after his spoiled nephew Lot, the one who took advantage of him when Abram offered him his offer last week, choose which what you want. He took advantage. He was un, he's an ungrateful kid who was raised by his uncle, who is greedy and has now taken the best stuff. And he went down and he chose to live near Sin City. And it would be logical and easy to say he's getting what he deserves. So I wonder, why does Abram go after his nephew? And the simple answer is this, it's love. He still loves that ungrateful, spoiled nephew. <laughs> he raised him. And so he's willing to go lay it all on the line to, to rescue him. We've seen as we've been going through the story here that Abram is a picture for us of what it is to be a a God follower. What it is in faith to follow God and His promise. Abram is that picture and we've seen that Lot is a contrast. Lot is the picture of faithlessness. Lot is the picture of faithless living. And now Lot has ended up where faithlessness and sinful living often take us. Those of us who have ever sinned and 
lived sinfully. We understand that the end of that, the Scripture says, is the way of death. That it often ends in captivity and in, in bondage and in ruin and in destruction. And that's exactly where Lot has ended up. And the temptation for you and me sometimes is to look at the person who is caught in the bondage from the sin that they, that they indulged in and, and we look at that and we say they have gotten their just desserts. They have gotten exactly what they, we would expect them to get for the way they lived. And what does a righteous, godly person do, a faithful follower of God do for a person who is caught in sin like that? What Abram does is seeks their rescue. And may I say that is what the Scripture says that we ought do also. Galatians chapter 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in, a, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Speaking there to believers, a believer who goes astray and falls into sin and gets caught in it, and those who are spiritual of us should go to them. It is our responsibility here, according to Paul, to go and to seek to restore them, to get them out of that. The Apostle Paul also writes the Corinthians. He reminds us there of Christ's love that rescued us from sin. It was His death and resurrection that, that freed us from sin, that has given to us new life. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians 5 to say that Christ's love then should compel us, it should control us, it should move us, it should motivate us to live for Him. And he says it this way in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has rescued you out of the pit of sin, out of all the mess you were in, out of the bondage you were in. He has given you new life. And so it is our responsibility. We should live for the One who died for us and part of that is recognizing that He's made us His ambassadors. So that you and I are to be the mouthpiece of God going out into this world saying, be reconciled to God. Implore them. He says, beg them. Please. The person who follows Jesus should share Jesus' heart and share Jesus' mission, which Jesus described like this in Luke chapter 19. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus goes on, actually a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 15, and He says this, asks the question, He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? Do you not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost sheep until you find it? It's a rhetorical question. And the point is, that is the heart of God that goes and seeks after the, the lost sheep. And it should be the heart of God's people. Whether, whether we're talking of believers who have gone astray and wandered from the faith and gotten caught, trapped in sin, or whether we're talking folks who are unbelievers who are caught and trapped in sin, our love and concern is the same. We are seeking to bring people to the grace of Christ. We are, as it were, God's special forces on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost. This rescue mission is vital business for folks who are caught in sin. 
The James writes in his letter, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This mission of rescue is truly a mission of life and death. It was good to see my brother Bill Tony here last week. If you don't know Bill, you may not know Bill was in the hospital about eight weeks ago. All this whole ordeal started. Went in the hospital and then over a course of a few days almost died. I think it was seven times. Seven times that he died technically and they're shocking him back. It was there a couple of those times. When the alarm goes out, And in just a matter of seconds, people start flocking from everywhere. Highly trained medical personnel appear from every corner of the hospital in just seconds. And this room suddenly is filled to the overflowing with people. Matter of fact, there were twice as many people as could fit in the room. Half of them are out in the hallway. All of them standing by with equipment or just ready to go with their specialty of knowledge and expertise. And they're all waiting in case they're needed for whatever needs to be done because they want to save this man. Praise God they were there and, and they, and by the grace of God, Bill is up and about and, and, uh, what a blessing. And we would say, well, you know, and I wonder why do they do that? We would say, well, because Bill's a great guy. But they do that kind of stuff every day for all kinds of people. Why do they do that? Because a human life is a precious thing. Even in this broken, sin-sick, war-torn world, we all know that a human life is a precious thing. But I, I wonder, do we feel the same about the human soul as we do about the human life? See, we place so much attention on the human life, but... Do we feel the same urgency for the human soul, which, you see, will live forever in either heaven or hell, eternal glory or eternal punishment? And do we have the same urgency to save a soul from eternal punishment as we do to save their physical life? We get comfortable. Abram was comfortable in in Mamre. We get comfortable here in St. Charles County. We settle down with our house and our car and our family and our dog and our lazy boy recliner. And there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. But there's a problem when our focus becomes being comfortable. (laughs) You see, when being comfortable is our focus and we forget that this world is not our home We forget that Abraham is the pattern and the example. And as we look at his life, we we noted that Abraham didn't get to the land of Canaan and start drawing up plans to build a house. Abram lived out his days as a sojourner, a wanderer. He lived in a tent. He never owned the promised land. The writer of Hebrews tells us it's because Abram, who didn't receive what was promised, he didn't receive it In this lifetime, he received it from afar. He understood that. He understood the real promise isn't here. The promise is there. 
It says they were looking for a city whose builder is God. A city whose foundations are in heaven. And so it should be for you and me that we understand this is not our home. This is where God has us and there are good things here, but we cannot let this become our home. We must not fall in love with this place that is temporary. And in this meantime of this life, we are living in a battlefield. This world is a battlefield for the human soul. And will we see it as that? That is why our focus this month is on missions. We need to be involved in, the, in this rescue of souls. We need to be engaged with our time, with our energies, with our finances, with our prayer. We need to be ready Abram's 318 trained men, he didn't train that night to go out and rescue Lot. They were already prepared. He recognized it was a dangerous world. Someday they were going to need to be ready. So they were already ready. In a similar way, you and I need to be ready. There is an enemy, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, trying to ensnare and capture. He has already blinded the hearts and minds of people in this world. Are we ready to go and engage the enemy so that when God provides opportunity, we're able and ready to share the gospel or to go wherever He calls us to go or to send whoever He calls us to send? Are we ready? How we need to have the passion of Charles Spurgeon. I love this quote of his. He says, If sinners be damned, then at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, then let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. But I fear that for most of us, most of the time, We do not have that sense of urgency and that sense of importance in the rescue mission. But I believe that is the picture of this rescue mission. Pictures what our mission really is. The second part of the story picks up in verse 17 as Abram is on his way back home. Verse 17, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Keterloamer and the kings allied with him, The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself, but... Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God Most High, the Creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will not accept, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a, a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Abner and Eshcol and Mamre. Let them have their share. 
Abram on his way back home. Boy, if there had been TV, the news media would have been abuzz. If they had social media, the tweets would have been flying. If they had radio, there would have been songs about Abram blaring over the radio and on podcast, and you could get them, download them from iTunes. They would have been making movies, and you would have been able to go to the theater and see the, you know, the the uh, exploits of Abram, and kids would be in the backyard playing Abram. <laughs> he had just pulled off the most dramatic rescue in history. It's the stuff of a good movie and a good book. As he comes back, he's returning with all the people and the wealth, the fabulous wealth of five cities. And they were very wealthy cities. And as he comes, he comes to the valley, it says, of Shiva, a valley we're not really sure where it is, but it's likely near Jerusalem, possibly the very, the Kidron Valley. And there he encounters these two kings. He meets first the king of Sodom, the king of Sin City. He's coming out on his way up from the Jordan Valley. He comes up to meet and honor Abram. Yet before he gets there, and before he, he gets to say anything to Abram, another king it pops in. King Melchizedek comes. That mysterious guy shows up. And he, he grabs Abram and He who is both a king and a priest also is a prophet because he brings refreshment to Abram, he brings blessing to Abram, and he also brings a message to Abram. Why does this mysterious priest show up besides being a picture of Jesus Christ that we talked about earlier? And I believe it's exactly because God has an important message that Abram needs to hear. And he sends Melchizedek to deliver this important message. See, Abram doesn't realize it, I don't think, but he faced grave danger going up to rescue Lot, but he very likely is facing a graver danger even now as he comes home. See, often the greatest danger we face is not the, the obstacles and the fights and the the oppositions we face. It's not the times of suffering that we face. But often the greatest difficulty, the greatest temptations, the greatest challenges we face are really when we have success and victory. See, the other, what, they, what uh, Abram faced before was physical danger, but what he's about to face here is spiritual danger. Success and victory bring with it two great temptations and among those are, or of those are possessions and pride. Possessions, because the more we have, the, the more possessions we have, the more they tend to own us. The more stuff we get, the more stuff we tend to want. And the more stuff we have, the more it tends to grab our hearts. And those of us who are the rich, which is all of us, we see it in our own heart. We see it in our culture. Not only that, but coming on the heels of success is is this temptation to pride. Oh, how easy it is when we are successful, when we when we accomplish something, for us to sit there and go, (laughs) look at me. Especially in Abram's case, as 
as everybody it must be singing the praises of Him coming back from this marvelous, unbelievable victory. Rescuing all of these people, all the loved ones, rescuing all the stuff. How easy it is, especially when any of our successes become the talk of other people, where people talk about, whoa, you did good, oh, you won, oh, you're great, and we start to believe the press reports. And how easy it is for us to start to say, I'm awesome. And how easy it is to move from that to say, I can handle things myself. And we begin to dismiss God, and at times that moves from dismissing God, I don't need you, to opposing God. To things that all the way through Scripture are stumbling blocks for the people of God. Possessions and pride. And Abram is stumbling into both of these. And so before the king of Sodom gets there, I believe God providentially moves the king, King Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, to meet Abram and to deliver a message that really provides two antidotes to the two temptations. The antidotes are this, in verse 19 and verse 20. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. By the way, a better translation for that word creator, I believe, is possessor. And the point is this, though. God is the Creator of everything. He made it all and He owns it all. And the problem with possessions, the problem with wealth that you and I usually face, whether we have lots of it or whether we have very little of it, Whatever our situation was with wealth, the problems with wealth that we face, whether it is worrying about wealth, about getting it or keeping it, whether it's hoarding it, whether it's loving it, whether it's pursuing it, all the problems we have with wealth come down to forgetting or not understanding this reality. All the wealth comes from God and all the wealth belongs to God. We didn't earn it and it's not ours. It's a stewardship, a trust. If you are a wealthy person this morning, which you are, it is a stewardship from God. And the question is, what are you going to do with the great wealth that you have? If you have already bought the lie that it's yours, and if you've already bought the lie that I earned it, then you're in trouble. So Melchizedek, in his blessing, delivers this message. Secondly, he delivers the next part, verse 20 where he says, And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemy into your hands. God gives the victory. Abram, I don't care how well, how well trained your men were. I don't care what a great tactician you were in military strategy. The reason there was a victory is because God delivered the enemy into your hands. And so it is with every one of us in any success we have. It is from God. It is a gift from God. And so he needed to hear that to deal with pride. question is, does Abram get the message? Absolutely. It comes in a single response that is, give, that is displayed in two things. The single response is that Abram gives God glory. He gives God glory with the stuff. If you see, it says that after Melchizedek does this blessing, Abram, it says, gives him a tenth of everything. By the way, realize it's a tenth of everything. Everything meaning all the stuff that he comes back with. Think millions, millions, millions of dollars. That's what we're dealing with here. A tenth 
is millions and millions. Here, Melchizedek, take it. In so doing, as Abram goes to the messenger, the priest, the king, the prophet, and he gives this gift, he is doing so to give to God. And Abram, in doing that, is recognizing the message from this one who said, it is God who gave the victory. It is God who is the supplier of all you have. Abram is recognizing that is true, and I worship and honor God by giving to Him. He got it. King of Sodom is over there with his mouth on the ground, and Lot is over there watching with his mouth on the ground. They just watch Abram give away all this stuff and go, what in the world? But Abram, as any good victor, the the maxim is true, to the victor belongs the spoils. It really all belongs to him. The king of Sodom then comes up and he approaches and he wants to honor Abram and he he offers him a, a quote, a deal. He says, I tell you what, just give me the people and you can have all the stuff. Abram refuses the king of Sodom. He says, did he get the message? Well, his response is this. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the words that Melchizedek just used, the creator or possessor of heaven and earth, the words Melchizedek just used. (laughs) And I raised my hand and gave a vow to God that I will not take anything from you. Why? Because Abraham is too good for him? Because Abraham is just a humble guy? No, because Abram is concerned about God's honor, God's glory. And Abram says, I want God to get all the glory. I don't want you to ever be able to say, I made Abram rich. If I'm going to be rich, it's going to be because God made me that way. See, Abram has caught the message about pride as well. It's about God's glory. Abram is placing God's honor and his reputation over his own enrichment. Just to wrap it all up, the more that Abram knows and grows and walks with God, the more concerned and the more he desires God's glory. And so it will be with you and me. The more that we know God, the more that we grow in Him, the more that we walk with Him, the more that we will desire God's glory. William Carey, a great pioneer missionary, the man often called the father of missions, on his deathbed was speaking to his friend and he said, you know, you've been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. That's the heart of the one who is following the Lord. And if God's glory is our great desire, then we're also going to be committed and impassioned and engaged in God's rescue mission to reach next door and around the world with the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, lots of stuff here, so little time, but what an important message we need because the reality is, Lord, we get caught up in the stuff. We get caught up in pride. We get our eyes off of You. We get our eyes on ourselves. Lord, forgive us of that, for You deserve all the glory. Lord, even today as we have celebrated Your grace through Jesus Christ in His payment for our sin, Lord, may that 
Drive us to be more concerned about Your glory. May it also drive us to be more concerned about Your mission. For You have left us here to be Your ambassadors. Lord, may our heart beat with the passion and the concern to see men and women and boys and girls, our next door neighbors, and those folks around the world that we see on the news. Lord, may our, may our be the the desire and the prayer of our heart and the working of our hands to see these folks hear of the good news of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.